I'm, I'm excited to uh, talk with you and, and have this conversation. Before we get started, I don't know if you just saw the news, but uh, Charlie Munger uh, passed away uh, oh. today. And so uh, just uh, just wanted to pause and, and talk about the abominable no man. And uh, man, one of his, or one of my favorite quotes for, from his among hundreds of them is, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Oh. Uh, man, he's just so incredible and so great. And uh, I know all of us will be thinking a, a lot about him and we've lost uh, just an all-time great when it comes to quick-witted people. And so I think it's a perfect transition, uh, Paul, to talk about a, one of my favorite quick-witted individuals, uh, which is Paul T. Tran of <laughs> Halal Guys <laughs> uh, fame. And so I'm not sure. I assume most of the folks that are going to tune in uh, today probably know who you are. But before I jump into some of uh, your beliefs and some of your contrarian thinking, and then also talk briefly about how you would consult maybe a struggling business owner, uh, just give the quick rundown, um, the highlights uh, of Paul T. Tran. Yeah, sure. And uh, I didn't realize this about Charlie Munger. And um, yeah, he was he was a beast, even though Warren Buffett got all like the attention. Like, I knew that uh, Charlie Munger was like, behind the scenes, uh, running, running everything. And it reminds me of a couple quotes that I, I live by, um, if you don't mind, one of them was, uh, knowing what you don't know is more useful than being brilliant. So uh, and another one is, uh, what is it? Uh, mimicking the herd invites regression to the mean. Mm. Um, uh, but as far as uh, you want me just to kind of give like a, a 30 second background. Yeah. Talk about who you are. So if anybody listens, uh, later, uh, they get a bio of, of who you are and why in the world you're talking about franchising. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, so I, have uh, I've been in the restaurant business for about 17 years. Um, got into the business, uh, through just a series of accidents and, uh, I, I always joke that it's a series of accidents, complete ignorance, uh, immense arrogance, and just a lot of grace. Uh, well, the success comes for, uh, because of grace, but um, I've uh, put on many different hats throughout the, the almost 20 years. I've uh, been an independent restaurant owner. Uh, I've also become uh, a representative to franchisors. I've also become a multi-unit franchisee, which is how you and I first connected. Uh, um, I'm the largest franchisee for the Halal Guys, which is a famous New York street food brand uh, in New York City. Um, I think one of my advantages is that I kind of double dip in that I can kind of see both perspectives. And I feel like that allows me to um, to kind of see a much more complete zoomed out picture of what it takes for a franchisor to succeed uh, and, uh, and, and benefit the franchisees in the process and how franchisees feel in the trenches and having a pulse on what consumers are experiencing today and being able to inform the franchisor and just, you know, just uh, make everyone better and system the network effect. But, um, but yeah, I, I uh, do that. And also just being in the business has just attracted a lot of restaurant owners who have also reached out and, and um, asked for some help with either growing their brand or operating a lot more effectively. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, so sorry for that <laughs> pinball of a, bio, but hopefully uh, questions and answers will, will expand on, on anything that might be of interest. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is going back to 
your origin story of how you got started. I mean, you just went absolutely headlong into the restaurant game with, I think, almost no experience or literally no experience. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is this is one of those things where I think a, a lot of people have particular beliefs around franchising and franchising restaurants and, and going into business in general that aren't true. Like you just hear a lot of stuff out there. And one of the things that you and I've talked about a lot is there's just, there's just a lot of bull crap that's out there uh, that that's not true. And so, um, you know, you didn't have a ton of experience or capital. So let's start with that. Do you think that's necessary to go into franchising? Yeah. Um, there's going to be two schools of thoughts here, but uh, schools of thought here, but I guess everyone is different. So again, do your own research and this is on your own risk tolerance. But for me, uh, there's no way I would have ever gone to the restaurant industry had I had I had experience uh, knowing just how damn hard it is. And also, if I knew that a typical restaurant would cost, you know, about 400, 500,000 for the first restaurant that I built, um, I, I probably would have just mentally dismissed it like mentally clipped it and just went on with about my career or just finished college and just went like a normal route um but i, I think a little bit of ignorance and uh, i i like to hide behind the the saying that um uh, what is it uh professionals built the titanic and amateurs built the ark um I, and i also think of case studies like uber and airbnb where they were created by founders who they weren't necessarily experts in the in industry, like with decades long, you know, tenure, they, they pretty much were consumers and they were just sick and tired of something that irritated them and they just wanted to fix it and they just scratched their own itch. And for me, I, I just like, you know, I, I just love the cuisine that I served, but there just wasn't an available amount, an ample or easy to access uh, amount of supply of what I wanted. So instead of just, complaining and kicking and screaming or settling by waiting three to four hours for the food I wanted. Why not just get, get start for the drug reference, but get high off my own supply. Uh, and so that was pretty much how I led into the business. I didn't think about the economics. I didn't think about, you know, having culinary experience. All that stuff was just overshadowed by the fact that I just wanted some damn food. <laughs> and also um, it, that, that also uh, didn't, have me think too much about how much capital was needed. I just felt like, you know, how hard can it be and how how expensive can it be? I've seen mom and pops, you know, make food out of, you know, their car, their, their carb trunks or serve foods out of their garage, or they do catering out of their own kitchen. Like how hard could it be? So I've seen a little bit of like how the entrepreneur spirit has just broken down the traditional barriers. And I, I just didn't think much of it until until later. So I hit the brick wall later, but it was already too late. And I've already had some costs. And in this case, some costs were in my favor. I just had to keep on trucking and figuring it out as we go. So um, that's how I approached it. Pretty horrible. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I, I do think at least in the restaurant game, it's funny, like, a lot of folks will ask, or they assume at Chick-fil-A as a Chick-fil-A franchisee that you had to have worked at Chick-fil-A before. And I remember going through the process um, of selection and, and talking with a lot of folks at the Chick-fil-A corporate side on, on who they decided was going to go into business with them. And they were not big fans of people who had been managers of restaurants because 
and maybe you agree with this, but really, if you're going to be a franchisee, I think you need to have a heck of a lot more than just being a manager. Like it's, it goes back to uh, so many people uh, have this, you know, initial good idea. And then all they're doing is creating a job. You need to have somebody that has a heck of a lot more than just management experience. Uh, you're going to, you're going to deal with so much. I mean, we hit that brick wall there, there's a lot more going on. So um, what are some of the other things in, in your mind that people tend to believe about franchises and franchisees that it drives you nuts when you see it and you go, <laughs> that is just not true. I, I have to say something about it. This is, this is your moment to speak the <laughs> truth. Um, actually, what you just asked right now kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said earlier about having someone with experience. Um, you know that quote, uh, some people are so poor that all they, ha all they have is money. Um, I I'd like to believe that there's also people who are just, you know, so, um, yeah, so, I don't know, so, so poor and experienced that they, oh, sorry, so poor that all they have is experience. Actually, a, a lot of the franchisees that I've consulted for actually didn't have any food experience at all. They didn't have any egos. They didn't have uh, a lot of sunk costs that were driving their decisions because I believe sunk costs are more like past decisions uh, versus, you know, new data and reality. Um, and so I, mean, I love Chick-fil-A's model in that and it's not dependent on capital. It's not dependent on anything else, really, except for someone who just be a great re representative of the brand. It's someone who's coachable. I think coachability is a lot better than experience because coachability means you're adaptable to reality versus, again, experience pulls from the past. And the past is changing so quickly that it's, it's quickly losing its, its, its uh, effectiveness, right? So one of them is, yes, experience. Um, as far as capital is concerned, I mean, I, both of my restaurant ventures, my first one and my second jump back into the halal guys, I mean, yes, they both required capital. Um, however, um, they didn't necessarily require my capital. And what I did for the second time around, so for the first time, I, I ended up just using some of my student loan money. And I also asked a couple of family friends for money. And that's how we were able to make it work. Second time around, I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to build a large organization. And I knew I couldn't do that alone. And so what I did was I just partnered up with people who I knew would complement me really well. And they also had their own strong network of people who were looking for investment opportunities. So it was a great exercise in putting together a pitch deck and being able to, to fundraise. And um, I, I love I love sales and I love um, I love being able to put deals together. So that was a really fun exercise and just reaching out to people and can, you know sharing the vision and getting you know the right investors behind our project. Uh, I'm not sure if I told you this from our last chat, but we, uh, out of my nine stores, we have we had forty we have forty investors, and it sounds like a lot, um, but they ranged anywhere from people who were able to fund one entire store all the way to some friends and family who invested anywhere from five to ten thousand, and that was all they could uh, put in. And uh, we just managed expectations, and we just said, hey, like uh, we need you to you just remember this is a, a passive minority investment. Like you need to put this money in knowing that you're trusting us to do the right thing and, and stay out of our way. And it's, it's been a great experience since. So, I mean, capital is not necessarily if, if you do have the vision and 
the the, the people and the assets that kind of are, are able to 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 raise capital. Um, so what's the what's the yeah. what's the um, just real quickly there? Yeah. What is when you say managing their expectations? So I invest in you, Paul. I don't, what what's can you share like what the average dollar investment is? Yeah. Um, well, I'd say the average is about 50, 50, 50,000 to a hundred thousand, um, okay. was the range, but we did have quite a bit of people who did just put like five to 10 grand. They just wanted to be in it, like be part of the growth, which is yeah. crazy because they ended up being like our biggest ambassadors and our biggest cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. So now we have like 40, uh, marketing agents out there, um, you know, making noise about our stores and, that was really great, good for us. So yeah. And so if you you know you invest fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars in all guys or in you, what's the agreement look like? What's the ROI? I'm just interested in that because I think some people would want to know like how you kind of structured that particular deal, since you're not necessarily using all of your own capital. Yeah, great question. Um, so I'll kind of give you the the high level of it. I mean, so what we did was we raised five hundred thousand per store. And uh, what we did was um, we asked our investors to fully fund the store. Uh, but because of our agreement with the Halal guys, the Halal guys didn't want 40 people that they didn't even know of or approve to have any majority or, or stay in the business, right? So we had to ha maintain majority ownership. So even though they fully funded the store, um, we got 60% ownership and the investors got 40% ownership. Um, however, um, you know, we wanted to make sure our investors felt like it was a good deal. It wouldn't take forever to make their money back. So what we did was we gave them a an accelerated payment payment plan. So um, it, it was like an artificial payment. So even though they got forty percent equity, what we promised was that we would give them eighty percent of the profits until they got a hundred percent of their money back. After that, uh, they would just switch back to the natural. 60 40 split forever for the life of the business. So um, that was able to entice the deal that was able to, uh, again, your Charlie Munger reference, like, like align the incentives properly. I mean, that was a, a great incentive for us to make or to be profitable as soon as possible. Uh, and, and, um, and also it helped us drive top line. Uh, and, and the other incentive is that we needed to charge like a 5% management fee very similar to like a hedge fund manager that charges like a assets under management fee. So we charged um, 5% of sales. So those two things allowed us to number one, uh, be as generate as high sales as possible. And then the, the accelerated returns was uh, to make sure our investors were taken care of, and we were profitable as soon as possible, that there was a sense of urgency. I love it. I, I think that's really helpful. Um, one of these days, I'd love to see the pitch deck. Maybe you can do a uh, a share of that. I think that'd be really, really interesting. Um, okay, so I want to make sure that we get to some of your other uh, hot takes and have an opportunity if anybody wants to ask questions to do that. Um, you're about to share another maybe lie that people believe about franchising. Um, what, what are some other lies that drive you crazy? Set us straight. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think uh, this will probably trigger uh, some of our friends on Twitter. I won't say any names, but uh, one of them, uh, this one's, uh, this one's, uh, this one requires a little bit more context, but uh, you don't, you don't necessarily 
so in the franchise industry, um, there, there's a document called the FDD, called the Franchise Disclosure Document. Um, and that's pretty much to protect uh, potential investors and franchisees. And there's this section in there called the Item 19. And that's where you typically show your sales figures and your profitabilities, essentially like some version of your P&L. Um, I guess my belief is that you don't necessarily need to have an item 19 to, to be able to sell franchises and to be able to grow your business. And this is from personal experience. I know a lot of franchises, you know, use that as a sales tool. I don't because I believe that when people look at that, especially when they look at it too early in, in their due diligence process, they've already made a decision about the brand that I don't think is as reflective of the kind of franchisees you want in like there's a lot of people who just look at money and they don't care about the passion. They don't care about capabilities and they just decide on money. And I believe that when you make a decision based on money, it's already a bad decision. I think that there's no shortage of ways to make money. Uh, I think you need to layer it with passion. You need to layer it with your DNA and your calling, uh, whether you even have the resources to do the best job possible, um, stuff like that. And so I'd say 90% of the brands that I've consulted for, and I've sold over a thousand franchises, so there's a pretty large data set. 90% of the, the brands that I've consulted for have don't even have item 19. And I think you're wondering, like, how the hell do you sell a franchise without having financial numbers? Uh, and I think that there's just a good sequence where I want to recruit franchisees who are 100% all about the brand, the leadership, the beliefs, uh, they're passionate. Uh, only at, um, only until I feel like they have all that in place. I mean, I would have them actually talk to franchisees that are already in the system who have taken the stuff before them to validate whether the brand is, you know, it meets the hype, whether the financial profitability is there, whether it makes sense. And so I, I, I generally like to not even have the, 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 the item 19. So I know that requires a little more context and sequence, but I hope that makes sense. But that's one of the things I believe in. That's probably one of the bigger points of contention on Twitter. <laughs> no, I love that. I think John Marsh has talked about it in a totally different context, uh, more in real estate where he um, loves to live at the intersection of purpose and profits. And Paul, I know that you and I have talked about uh, it's it's better to be involved in a brand where you have like a ton of belief in the leadership that is probably more powerful as well as the purpose. And when those things are in alignment, uh, I mean, profit's got to be the money has got to be there. Uh, that is absolutely essential. It's like the lifeblood um, of the organization. But um, yeah, I love the hot take. It's super good. So I want to pause for a second. Um, if anybody has any questions, I have more questions for Paul, but um, wanted to see if anybody who is listening wants to uh, jump up, I think they call it on stage. Uh, I can invite them up to speak. And if you want to do that, go ahead and uh, raise your hand and happy to pull you up. If not, uh, we're gonna go into uh, consulting mode with Paul here in a second and, uh, and dive into a couple more interesting questions but um uh if you yeah if you got any questions or you can drop it below if you don't want to speak uh i can see it if you just reply uh down there at the bottom you can see a little purple 
think it's at least the same for me. You can see a little purple button down there, um, and you can leave a comment below uh, on the thread, and I'm happy to uh, respond to anything there or bring it up. So uh, you don't necessarily have to speak. Uh, sometimes it freaks people out. So while we're waiting for that, um, again, if you have any any questions, you want to raise your hand. Um, I think you click the little uh, heart thing and raise your hand. So Paul, um, let's put. I want to put you in consulting mode. <clears throat> Obviously, speaking sure. from your time as uh, an operator, and uh, hopefully that word doesn't <laughs> trigger you like it triggers me. I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, so. You're cons- I want you to put your in the, yourself in the in the spot of you're consulting a struggling business owner or restaurant owner in particular, who um, let's just lay this out because there's so many of them. They can't find talent. They can't retain talent. Uh, profitability is struggling, and they're just pulling their hair out. I mean, they they're trying to figure this thing out, and they can't. And they keep running into these challenges over and over again. Um, I know those are two different things, like to approach profit and to approach talent. But what are the, some of the questions you would ask, and how would you approach consulting this type of franchisee or business owner? Yeah, um, I think the first thing they need to do is put a sign out front and says "door closing, everything must go," uh, and just leave it on there for years because that's what furniture uh, companies do, and it works really well for them. I'm just kidding. There's a hack. That, there's a hack right there. <laughs> um, well, I, I think, um, yeah, it, it requires such a much more deeper dive, right? But I, I, you know, there's a couple of things that um, that a restaurant owner can do. Um, a lot of times, it's you know, looking into the P and Ls and finding out like how much are you spending on advertising. A lot of times, uh, you know, brands just don't spend enough money on advertising, and so a lot of them think that the food is so good or the real estate is so good that people will just like fall into the store and, and, and take, take your money, right. And, and, and give you their money. Um, and so you want to make sure you're always marketing or finding some way to do community outreach. I, I, I always tell, you know, restaurant owners that, you know, you're in an, you're in an age now where um, there's no shortage of options and um, competition is so fierce, but at the same time, the bar is so low. Because, again, most people just believe that, you know, customers would just automatically come to your store. But no, some of the best franchisees and operators, actually, they don't wait. They just go out and get their, their customers. They, they go out to all the local businesses and offer catering and ask to be their, their preferred vendor for catering. And catering is such a huge business. You know, Tim, as you know, like there's – I bet you Chick-fil-A has a, an amazing catering program and the, the catering profit margins are so much better too. It's just shocking that like a lot of restaurant owners don't pursue this. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is, um, you know, a lot of times it's someone who has a lot of, a lot of uh, people assume that they can just not be in the store and they're just absentee owners. Unfortunately, that's a myth. And um, a lot of times it's, it's a lot of, PL items that can be easily managed or expenses can be easily cut down just if you were in the store and you noticed inefficiencies and you saw where you were spending that you can easily cut down just like a personal budget like if you don't look at your personal budget like no wonder you don't have any money at the end of the month you have more month at the end of the money <laughs> and so a lot of times it's just being present uh, is an easy quick fix uh, another thing is um, yes restaurants tend to be pretty low margin 
And a lot of times there are tasks that, I mean, you as the owner shouldn't be doing. And there's also a lot of tasks that your workers or your management staff shouldn't be doing. Uh, and I think it's in an effort to, you think you're saving money, but you're actually hemorrhaging a lot of cash or in, in terms of efficiency or where your workers and managers need to be most valuable. A lot of times it's maybe considering, you know, looking at a, a, an, like a remote staff, like uh, that, that can help, you know, automate a lot of the things that you do. One of the, my favorite things about my business is that I, I actually have a staff of, of uh, a virtual assistants uh, that actually help me uh, take a lot of the, the, the heavy workload off my plate and they do a much better job than I do. And because of where they are geographically, there's arbitrage where um, I, I'm able to save quite a bit of money for, for like professional level work. And, um, and so uh, it's been able to help me recapture margins and become more profitable that way. Um, and so that's another way to, 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 you know, be a little bit more profitable. Um, but I mean, those are a few things that come to mind. I mean, uh, one of the biggest things I've seen recently has just been a lot of restaurant owners just don't, aren't willing to raise their prices on their food either. It's funny because inflation and the competition is raising prices. And, you know, right now, third party delivery is a real thing and they take a huge chunk of your profitability. It's crazy that restaurant owners are so unwilling to to raise their prices. Of course, after making sure you're as efficient as possible or negotiating with vendors for better pricing, um, you need to be okay with raising prices because, uh, I mean, you can keep your prices that way and, and continue sinking with the ship. Or I always tell restaurant operators that want, consider raising your prices and two things will happen. Number one, you'll always 100% wish that you did it sooner. And number two, a better way to look at raising your prices is raise your prices and and do everything you can to earn every cent of that. Um, it, it's all about value and perception. I mean, if you're not earning it, then yeah, any price, even two cents for a hamburger that's horribly made is is not is too expensive. So um, those are a couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, I love the posture of value based pricing. Like you can't be afraid of raising pricing. We we did a test. Uh, at my restaurant this summer, uh, where we raised prices 10%. And I'm telling you what, it was the best thing we've ever done. And I mean, it, it was incredible. And we obviously reinvested that we put it into uh, talent, we put it into some crazy weird, I think I told you, like, I, I literally rented out a porta potty that was like, high end porta potty, if such a thing exists, I promise you, it was really cool. Yes, yes. Um, because our bathrooms were overrun. And you know, we, we added mouthwash to the bathrooms and, and just little things that you go, man, how can we add value to customers? I want to ask you this. Um, I want to imagine like I'm walking in with Paul into one of the rest, many restaurants that you own um, as, as a franchisee. What are you going to be looking at and pointing out to me in terms of, you know, efficiencies just from like you, you talk about like, hey, restaurant owners, franchisees. They need to have some of that presence in the restaurant to really start working on that efficiencies. Like, what are some things that you might look at and look for um, with all your experience? Yeah, a um, couple things. Um, I guess I want to look at cleanliness of the store um, and cleanliness of the bathroom specifically. Um, <laughs> that that adage that you know, look at your look at the restaurant's bathroom, and uh, that'll kind of tell you what their kitchen probably looks like. Uh, I, I believe that. And I'd also, um, 
I'd like to also see some level of management out on the floor, either training the workers or talking to customers, uh, because you know the only way to to I mean to really show I I, I hate that I I would hate it if I knew that the manager was in the back somewhere, not really um, being out front where they should be with their with their troops. Uh, and so I, I look for management as well. Um, and then after I order, I, I also want to make sure I get acknowledged when I first come in as well. Uh, it's crazy. The again, the bar is so low. I, I think if a if a cashier just simply acknowledged uh, a customer that came in, even if they're way too busy to actually take their order, just being able to be seen and acknowledged and appreciated and know that you exist, uh, and it 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 just makes the customer feel like. Hey, I I will be eventually taken care of. Um, if you don't acknowledge them, you, I mean, their clock starts on on their on their patience, right? And also that gives you them a pass to leave and not come back to your store. And they mentally make a decision not to come back there because I wasn't valued enough to be acknowledged. So that's a pretty important one. And also, um, I mean, just seeing how the cashier uh, answers questions and makes recommendations is also. I mean, it's it's quite important, which is why I love Chick Fil A so much because they they've mastered being able to care and being able to take time with the customers, being able to educate, uh, being able to delight, and I feel like they they know that they have the chance to improve someone's mood and experience just by a short thirty second interaction. They just need to to give a damn, uh, and so and I also look in the back. I also see whether someone is assembling the food, whether walking back and forth from one station to another. And if I see that, I get kind of frustrated because, I mean, do you know the the the, the dining concept, uh, mise en place? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so Chick-fil-A has mastered this too. So, uh, I mean, sometimes it's, just a ma- sometimes it's just a matter of laying out all the ingredients and everything, carefully engineering it to where the worker moves as little as possible and that shaves off so many seconds and sometimes minutes in in putting an order together and the seconds and the minutes really matter when you times it by serving a thousand people a day serving you know a thousand times 360 people a year uh, 360 days a year uh, and which is why starbucks and chipotle and all these brands are investing in technology that shaves seconds because saving seconds you know multiplied by a couple of orders can add like an, I can't remember what, what article I read, but saving a few seconds at Starbucks can add an extra like $10 million in revenue. I mean, it's no small feat, but I, I think you just need to be present and give a damn and care about the seconds and the minutes and the pennies and the nickels because the dollars and the profitability and long-term sustainability kind of take care of themselves if you focus on that. So that's how I think about it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I just did some quick calculations um, about, you know, if I could add two more cars in the drive-through, which oftentimes is a matter of just trimming, you know, a couple of seconds, maybe one second for each car. Yeah. Um, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars added to sales. Yeah. And if you're doing it efficiently and effectively, you're doing it profitably. Uh, you're you're definitely going to do really really well. Um, I just want to end with this, and then if anybody wants to ask a question, they absolutely can. Um, what's your what's your opinion uh, on third party? Where do you think that's going? I know we didn't prep for this question, but it just came to my mind as it's just, it's just part of franchising. It's part of restaurants. 
everybody has mixed feelings about it. Uh, you mentioned it offhand. I mean, the fees are crazy. Uh, you can't control the product once it leaves your restaurant. Like, how are you feeling about third party right now? Um, am I allowed to cuss? I'm just kidding. Um, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. No, I, I actually posted about this not long ago. Um, I think this is a great question. And uh, the way I see third party delivery is I think you just need to. Most people hate it. I know our uh, one of our Twitter friends, Mike Kundra, is is a very is really against like third or has not nice things to say about third party and rightfully so. I mean, third party has been. I mean, they they've taken a huge chunk of restaurant profitability, and I mean, our business is already low profit to begin with. However, I, I mean, I'd like to as long as you see third party delivery in a certain way, it can either help you or hurt you. I believe that third party, if you want to make it a profitable uh, perspective, I want to believe that third party is a good marketing avenue and a good first time avenue of good discovery or first time customer opportunity where you're bringing in customers that would have never visited your store in the first place. And what happens is, um, Going back to the fact that restaurant owners or or the staff just needs to care and they just need to shift uh, first time third party delivery customers over to loyal dine in or 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 uh, a much more profitable customer. When you fill these third party delivery orders, I recommend you know making sure double checking on making sure they have all the condiments, napkins, everything is presented beautifully. And what happens is you can put a note in there. And just saying there's a note from the owner or a note from the management just saying, hey, thank you so much for trying us out for the first time. Uh, we really appreciate the business. Um, and uh, however, uh, we'd love to have you sign up for our app or come in. Or did you know that we also do our own delivery? Or did you know that ordering th through the app gives you loyalty points towards free food? And it helps us as a business owner save money. Um, you know, please consider that and just send that note away. And you'll be shocked by how many times customers really feel like they're appreciated. And just by recognizing, bringing it to their awareness that they can shift over or they could help the business by, by shifting over to like a loyalty app instead, um, they'll do it. And, and they just need to know that they just need someone to care enough to do that. And they just need to be told to do it. And, and that way, now the, the customers shift from first timers that are really expensive because of third party. Now they order through the app, and now we can save on delivery costs even more. Now they can consider catering opportunities. Now you can actually have a real relationship with the customer because third party doesn't share data, customer data, and you can't have a relationship with your customers. So shifting them over from third party is, is the strategy. So, I mean, I would take third party all day long. I just hope that they're not repeat third party. My job is to hopefully shift them over to uh loyal customers and customers through the app and customers who are willing to come in and experience being delighted by our staff. Uh, just there's other ways to, to ha you know, have a much more loyal and much more positive customer experience. So hope that helps. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great way to end. Um, uh, Cause we've gone over, but um, man, just appreciate you for those who are listening. If you want to go really, really deep, uh, I've got an hour plus conversation with Paul on the tension podcast. Uh, which is in the comments here, the link to that. And then, uh, Paul, the floor is yours. Tell people where to find you. Obviously, hopefully you got some follows here. You need to follow um, Paul.
call because you're on your way to you need uh, 10,000 followers. I'm, I'm working on it for you. Um, but uh, <laughs> thank you. Tell man. the people where the, tell the people where they can find you, and uh, and then we'll we'll call it a day. But I appreciate your time and, and everything you uh, you do for us on uh, Twitter. Oh man, likewise to you, man. I, I it's funny because uh, we need to do a session for you too, but. Um, I mean, the best route is to just engage on Twitter. I mean, my website is there, probably has all the socials and all the other um, directions you can go. But yeah, feel free to follow me there and, and uh, say hi. And any questions at all, I'll do my best to answer them. But um, yeah, that's it for me. Thank you for listening and making time. And Tim, thank you for your generosity and hosting. And hopefully it was helpful to the people that we seek to serve. Outstanding. Well, as we say at Chick-fil-A, it was my pleasure. Have a great <laughs> night, everybody. Bye, everyone.